Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Rules have changed today, and guess what? IAQ Radio is in charge. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to episode number 41 of Indoor Air Quality Radio. My name is Cliff Slotnick, known as the Z-Man. Here with me in Studio B in Coriopolis, Pennsylvania, is our cyber jockey, my son, Zach Slotnick. Hey, how's it going, people? Good. My co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, is participating remotely from Studio C in Connecticut. Hello, Cliff. Hey, Joe. How are you? And our technical um, and our technical director, Doctor Doctor Dietrich Weil, is uh, phoned in as well. How are you, Dieter? Oh, I'm just fine. Uh, I'm not on vacation yet, Perfect. <laughs> and happen to be in Pittsburgh. Perfect. Okay, so you're in Studio P. Uh, you can contact me, Cliff Zlotnick, C-L-I-F-F-Z-L-O-T-N-I-K, at unsmoke.com. You can contact Radio Joe Use by emailing to him at joe.use, spelled H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. Today's segments include the Microband Trivia Quiz, interviews of the Contents Restoration Couple, Tim Jackson and Barb Jackson, a sound off, and a round table. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank today's sponsors. First, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying, water damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease, the first in drying solutions. You can find them on the web at dri-eaz.com. John Dunn Products. A restoration and abatement contractor shop. You can find them at jondon.com. The Restoration Forum at restorationforum.com. And last but not least, we'd like to thank Microband Systems, the microbial management company. You can find them on the web at microbandsystems.com. Information on contacting the show. To contact the show live by phone or text message, Simply go to www.talkshoe.com website and follow directions to obtain a PIN number. Our show ID number is 1547. We appreciate suggestions. We'll answer your questions and take requests if you email us at info at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Hey, good morning, good afternoon, uh, welcome. The microband trivia question this week, I need to find it. First of all, let's talk about last week's uh, trivia question. We did have a successful uh, answer to last week's trivia question. Uh, a fellow by the name of Jonathan Daniel did connect the dots between uh, 2600, which was um, Hertz, uh, person by the name of John Draper who was the who used the, who used the hacker alias Captain Crunch, Crunch because of the fact that he found a whistle in a box of Captain Crunch cereal which generates a 2600 hertz and what that does is that enables people to um, that enables people to make free long distance phone calls and as and as a result of that it formed a whole hacker subculture and back to you, Cliff, and here is the envelope for this week. Thank you. 
This week's question deals with disaster restoration, contents restoration in particular. A contents restorer must clean and polish a sugar bowl which they suspect may be made of silver. What key piece of information would a contents restorer use to determine the metallic composition of the bowl, the company that made it, its age, and its country of origin? Okay, Zach, uh, how about our first, let's see, let's get our first guest up. Zoo in Central Park is merely my private menagerie. I've carved my name on every tree. From Yonkers Raceway to Bowling Green, I own everything around and in between. It's all my personal property. Thanks, Zach. That was great and fitting music for today's guests. Tim Jackson and Barb Jackson are personal property experts. I'm going to go ahead and do both introductions now. Barb's going to be joining us a little bit later. You know, we know it's a woman's prerogative to be a little bit late, but today she has a very good reason. She's actually doing a presentation at the Crawford's Connection. She's talking to uh, primarily general contractors and talking to them about uh, how to do contents restoration. Our first guest, Tim Jackson, is a registered master plumber and owner of Jackson Plumbing since 1980. He combines his skills with the restoration industry from the plumbing industry. As co-owner of Restoration Cleanups, he served as production manager of many restoration cleaning projects. Tim is certified in restoration cleaning by both the Restoration Industry Association, the RIA, formerly known as ASCR, or Association of Specialists in Cleaning and Restoration, and the Institute of Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration, or the IICRC. Tim provides warehouse design services, project management consulting, and training for full-service restoration contractors and specialized cleaning contractors. His lovely wife, Barb Jackson, began in the disaster restoration industry in 1990, forming Restoration Cleanups, which provided restoration cleaning services to full-service restoration contractors in Pittsburgh and the entire tri-state area of western Pennsylvania. There, her duties included marketing, estimating, inventory, and project management of restoration cleaning projects. Barb is also certified by both the Restoration Industry Association and the Institute of Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification. Barb is a founding member of the Restoration Alliance, which is dedicated to the education and advancement of the restoration cleaning industry. Barb offers consulting and training services to full-service restorers and specialized cleaning contractors. She facilitates the development and implementation of contents processing systems and provides design and enhancement services of contents processing facilities. Okay, good afternoon, Tim. I guess good morning out there where you're joining us from. Sir, good morning and good afternoon. Okay. Well, my first question for you is, why did you decide to specialize in contents restoration consulting? It kind of uh, was an evolution. Um, as you mentioned, uh, Barb and I had the uh, restoration cleanups business where we actually did the hands-on cleaning, uh, structure cleaning, and we worked for um, just about every contractor, restoration contractor in the Pittsburgh area, and uh, after seeing and getting the experience that we needed and then attending some of the uh, industry events, uh, found out that there was a, a need there for uh, some, you know, companies to uh, basically benefit from the knowledge that we had uh, accrued over the 15, 16 years that we were in business. And uh, Barb, uh, her, with her personality, uh, basically started talking with people, and it kind of developed on its own. Uh, had some companies uh, invite us in to do some training seminars, and uh, the training then kind of took a life of its own. Cool. What are the key factors which go into layout and design of a contents restoration facility? Well, obviously, um, it, with your facility, um, we recommend a particular size. Uh, 8,000 square feet is probably the smallest would, that we'd want to go. Obviously, we've done designs on uh, facilities that have been uh, smaller square footage. That makes it a little bit uh, difficult. But 8,000 square feet seems to be good. And then 
you have personnel uh, issues that you need to get the right people in place to uh, be able to handle the, uh, the work, the equipment, obviously the, the different equipment that's out there that makes the uh, job easier to do, and then systems. Uh, very important to have systems in place, the correct paperwork, the documentation, uh, so that everything is done on a consistent basis. Hello, Tim. This is Joe Hughes. Um, welcome to the show. And I'm remote. Hopefully, I have a decent connection here. I'm curious. Uh, speaking of connections, when people are setting up these types of facilities, is there special lighting or other utilities that are required? Um, obviously, um, the utilities, um, water is is essential. Um, and interestingly, with my background in plumbing. When we design the buildings, uh, many times we're trying to get the most cost-effective design. So uh, knowing where the uh, sewer facilities are, water facilities, I try and design the stations where it's going to be uh, the most cost-effective to put them. So that basically requires, uh, we can't do it in a cookie-cutter fashion, obviously. Um, so we have to design each facility customize it to where the facilities are. As far as lighting, um, there, are, there are many different types of lighting. A lot of that has to come into play with the budget that each individual contractor has. Um, and we usually leave that to the recommendation of uh, the electrician and the, the contractor that's actually building the facility since the cost comes into play there. Tim, can you tell us or tell our listeners what a contents facility actually does. Anytime there is a loss, um, whether it be water damage or fire damage, um, and there's a necessity to remove contents from a building, uh, a contractor will go into the, the building and basically take the contents contents to his facility where then he will process them, clean them, um, if it's electronics, uh, you know, clean the electronics, and then get them back to pre-loss state and then return those contents to the homeowner. It's not just so, limited to electronics, though. This could be soft goods, uh, upholstery, sure. and hardwood furniture. And sure. So and so sure. Basically, we like to contents, our definition is if you would turn a building upside down and shake it, anything that would fall out um, would be a content. Anything that stays in there would be part of the structure. Um, so anything that's damaged and is in need of restoration, we would uh, take out of the building. As you say, um, hard goods, soft goods, furniture, that type of thing. So what would the key factors go into the layout and design of a contents restoration facility do all the all of your clients provide the same general types of services um, we have with the contents division um, I mean we have some contractors that are full service which means they actually go in and do reconstruction we like to set the contractors up with the basically the contents division is a, is a whole separate division from the other divisions in the company separate profit center for the company. So there are companies that that's all they do is contents cleaning. They don't do any of the reconstruction. So it all depends on what, what the contractor does. And as far as what we try to accomplish is to make the most efficient use of the space. So as you are bringing the contents in to be cleaned, that you have to handle them. Because the more you handle each item, the more potential for breakage. So we'd like to get a nice flow going through the facility. So you have your dirty contents coming in. You're able to clean everything. And then you have a nice efficient flow of where each station needs to be so to cut down on the, uh, the steps that it takes to get it from one station to the next, uh, obviously to cut down on the, the amount of time that is spent because time is money. So uh, that's what we have in mind when we initially look at a facility. How do you charge for your service, um, and do you commonly work with architects and general contractors? Yeah, we have a, a, a set fee that we charge for design work, um, and if we do not go on site to 
and a lot of our work, we don't even have to go on site to look at the facility. They, they do have an architect, architectural plan that they will send us, um, and we can work right off of that. Um, many times they'll be able to send us pictures of the facility, and we can work right from their, um, their architectural plans. And if we do have to visit the facility for some reason, um, there have been situations where um, because of the size and uh, what have you, we have had to make visits, and there's an additional charge for us to, to make the on-site on -site visit. I believe there's a second part of that question, and I don't remember. Oh, did, no, I think you answered it. Did you commonly work with architects and general contractors? And I think that you answered that. Okay. Very good. Tim, in, in um, designing these facilities, I assume at times you have to kind of, you know, um, not everybody can afford to build a full uh, turnkey operation. How do you determine, you know, which types of cleaning, contents cleaning, would be most appropriate for, to, you know, certain cleaners? Yeah, our initial contact with a, a contractor that wants to build a facility is we send out a questionnaire for them. It's a three-page questionnaire, pretty detailed. Basically, we ask them, you know, what are their capabilities now, what they want their capabilities to be, um, if they have a, a budget that they're working under, and then once we get that uh, profile back, we're able to make recommendations to them. We have an ideal setup, and we know how much that's going to cost. So based on that ideal setup with all of the equipment that we would recommend, um, if their budget is below that, then obviously we have to talk with them and get their input as to what they want to eliminate, what they want their focus to be, um, and then we build basically according to their their specifications and we customize it to their, their needs. I've got a three-part question for you. First of all, what is climate-controlled storage? Is it important? And what methods are used to provide climate-controlled storage? Climate-controlled storage means that Essentially, you have the ability to control the temperature in a, in a facility. Um, and again, in different parts of the country, um, if you're in the Northeast, uh, there are places where you have the cold weather. Um, there are a variety of different ways to heat a facility, and then by the same token, uh, here in the Southwest, we get 100, you know, 110, 120 degrees. So Air conditioning is more of a concern, keeping the facility in, in cool. And most of the time, um, again, we defer that off to the contractor as far as what method. Um, and again, because a lot of that has to do with the budget they have. Um, so their HVAC or their heating uh, contractor would be able to make recommendations based on the need that they have. You know, one of the reasons I asked the question is just a short follow-up. I would suspect in some parts of the country that humidity and humidity control may be a challenge. And I was just wondering whether or not, you know, these facilities might use either portable dehumidification equipment or some sort of built-in system or whether they just rely on the HVAC system to handle that. The designs that we've been doing... Um, They've been relying on the HVAC systems to take the humidity um, out of out of the, the facility, and it's been it's been working um, to, to their satisfaction. And obviously, if you get a situation of uh, designed a uh, facility in West Palm Beach, Florida, and they are simply using an, uh, their HVAC system to control the climate, and it's it's working well for them. What, uh, I'm, I'm just curious, Tim, if I have, to, you know, obviously uh, I've got some kind of budget. What's the, uh, let's go with the, the top of the line, you know, how much would I expect to have to spend to get the equipment and the uh, facility design that I need to do every type of uh, content restoration that would be done in-house. Yeah, and again, um, here if you're going top of the line, you're probably 
to be you know, spending in, in the range of you know 100 to 150,000 to $200,000 in equipment and, and setup. And now that that is you know the the elite basically. Um, it sounds like that. Out. It sounds like that would be a pretty good return uh, on investment. I've got. I'd like to move over to to to. to I guess the, the the subject of packing, moving, and, and, and storage. I've got some some questions there. Uh, first of all, can you tell me what a moving container is, uh, where they can be obtained, and how much they would cost? And okay. I'll defer that question over the barb. Okay, um, no problem. All right. Fifteen minutes. Uh, what about in terms of moving? Do most of your clients? use their own trucks and their own personnel to do this, or would they subcontract the service? The, right now, it's probably 50-50 with the clients that we've worked with. Um, for example, the, the company in West Palm that we did, they have a contract with a moving company. Um, they load the, uh, the vaults, the wooden vaults up, and then the moving company actually comes and picks them up and stores them for them. Um, because they didn't have room for a storage facility, and then moving company will bring the vaults over to their cleaning facility and take care of the transportation. Um, many of the companies do have their; they've bought uh, moving, you know, vans where they can do the, the packing, packing and pack packs. You know, using so they, you know, they, go ahead. using your plumbing bra- uh, background, I suspect that in these facilities, you know, water is a big issue. Um, do any of the facilities use specialized water? Do they soften the water? Do they deionize the water? Uh, and then is drainage uh, a problem? Do you have to have, do you have to specially treat the water before you can put it into a sanitary system? Do you have to separate, you know, gray water and, and so on and so forth in any of the areas? Good. That's a very good question. Let me just, uh, tell you a story about about that when I um, got my baptism I guess into the restoration business um, my first real uh, introduction to it was through your course cliff at the uh, the on smokehouse mm-hmm. in Braddock and um, that's probably what 15 20 years ago and uh, I had been involved in plumbing at that point and I remember having a conversation with you and you said uh, the restoration business is good he says but don't give up plumbing. <laughs> so, I always, so the things that I'm doing now, so I took, I took that as being coming from a very wise individual who had been in the restoration business for quite some time. So I did, never, never turned my back on the, on the plumbing, and you know, I kept that going. So it's, it's worked out well for me uh, because in this situation with the design, as you say, we're able to uh, – we recommend that a facility actually have uh, deionized water there are reasons for for that with as far as cleaning. Um, simplest way to explain it is the the minerals are taken out of the water as it goes through those uh, filters. And so when you rinse with that water, it doesn't leave behind any type of re- residue. So you're going to have uh, drying uh, done without spotting and so forth. Um, also with the, the ultrasonic equipment, which we recommend. Um, recommend they use either deionized water or uh, RO water uh, for that. And as far as the, nothing specialized as far as dumping the water into the sewer system, and especially now because more and more companies are getting into the uh, area of having green uh, cleaning solutions. So that, that makes that even less and less of a concern as, as, as we go. Um, but even with the, the other cleaning solutions that, uh, that we use, there's really no, nothing special that you have to do with the, uh, with the sewage. So I appreciate the advice, Cliff, I do. Okay. <laughs> I, never got, I never got a chance to say thank you. Oh, well, so. you're welcome. I'm taking this opportunity to say thank you. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I've always been, you know, I, I'm not an expert on in this area like Cliff is, and I'm curious. You used the term RO water, I believe it was. What? What exactly is that? Basically, that's reverse osmosis, gotcha. and it's just it runs. It's it's it's. You may have one of these systems in your house. A lot of people have them uh, underneath their kitchen sink. It's 
a series of filters that the water goes through. It's not as mineral-free as uh, deionized water, but it, it does take a lot of the uh, impurities out of the water. And a lot of people will have the, and it's exactly the same system, only on a larger scale. What kind of uh, cost would it be to, what's the cost differential between RO and deionized water? Is it uh, significant? The equipment, I guess. Yeah, the equipment is the biggest the biggest investment. Um, and your deionized filters are a little bit more expensive than the, the RO water. Um, but when you look at the... Um, when you're rinsing something off or you're cleaning something with the RI, you're actually saving time on, on, on that end. So, you know, we feel that the cost, the, the, having the, R, the uh, DI water, the deionized water, actually, uh, eventually, uh, it's going to pay for itself you know, from that standpoint. So we recommend having the DI, but again, uh, with something, uh, with the budget that a contractor may have, they may make the decision just to go with the uh, reverse osmosis. Tim, back to design. Uh, do you find that your clients are including ozone rooms and drying chambers or dehumidification chambers as part of the built-ins that you're putting in? Definitely. Um, that is one of the key um, factors that we put in to every one of our designs, a separate room for drying and then also a separate deodorization room. Many are using the ozone. Um, we have some now that are going to the uh, VaporTech uh, system mm -hmm. that as a marketing tool. But definitely we have two, two separate rooms that we use for the drying and the, and the deodorization. Are any of your clients using reusable packaging materials in order to do this? Like, do, do they just use the traditional cardboard boxes and, you know, use, a, you know, a new box to bring in dirty stuff? Or are some of them moving towards using, you know, recyclable, stackable plastic containers? At this time, none of our clients are using the recyclable, uh, reusable. They're... Um, essentially using, uh, and we recommend using uh, the brown basic boxes for your pack outs and then uh, using white boxes with your, lo your company logo on them for the pack backs. Mm -hmm. A couple reasons for that. The, the white gives a good presentation of clean being clean. And then also, you know, as they uh, pass those, boxes onto their friends and neighbors as they're moving. You have your logo out there um, circulated around. And But I would say right now 100% of our clients are still using you know, the cardboard boxes. I suspect Barb's not there, and what I want to do is I want to ask you a sex question. <laughs> and, and, the, and the question is, this is... This is, <laughs> this is This is your opinion, Tim. Do you think that women make better contents cleaners than men? If so, why? Yes, I, I do. Um, and the reason why is um, the dozens of companies that we've visited throughout the country and in Canada, that is just a fact. Um, they've, they've had men on their crews, they've had women on their crews, and in, in every instance, every one of the companies that have women are better. Essentially, it has to do with um, attention to detail, and it just seems that the women have that, they're uh, able to focus in and have that attention to detail. It's just based on you know, what we've seen in every one of the companies. Oh, splendid! This calls for a sexy party. I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, Oh man. <laughs> well, we wanted to talk about this before she get there. Yeah. Joe, yeah, there uh, over to you. <laughs> she should be coming here. Okay. To I, <laughs> I think I'm unmuted now. Um, yeah. You had mentioned 
the vapor tax system. I I'm not familiar with that, and maybe Tim, if you're not, Cliff, it sounds like you are. Could you guys explain for our listeners, one of you, what the difference between the ozone and the vapor tax system is? I'll defer that to Cliff if he's willing to answer. Oh sure, that. I, I I can do that. Uh, ozone is essentially an oxidizing system. And what the VaporTech system does is it uses an odor counteractant in a dry or vapor form, you know, to do the, the odor control. And, you know, we're dealing with materials that are porous, and every material has a certain ability to pick up bad odors. And because it has that ability, it should have an equal ability to pick up uh, an opposite odor or an odor counteractant. And, you know, I think both of those systems would, would be effective, um, you know, uh, as a matter of fact, you know, companies such as ours, you know, we started in the odor removal business in 1946, and uh, we were using vapor phase odor control. Uh, I have to give VaporTech a lot of credit as they took something that many people were doing, and now many people refer to VaporTech as the originator of this technology, and I think it's just great marketing. You always be want to be either better than everyone else, or you want to be first, and uh, you know, they created a market that they were first in. My, you know, I give them a lot of credit for that. Back well, to you, Joe. Actually, uh, Barb just came on the scene here, so um, if you all want to... Pick on her? Absolutely. Go ahead, yeah, Joe. You can pick on Barb. Okay, welcome, I, Barb. Well, let me put her on the phone. I just wanted to say thank you guys You're for having welcome. us Joe. And um, go Steelers. Okay, there we go. Uh, <laughs> Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Barb. How are you? This is still you. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I think we're both doing the same thing, taking a break from class and jumping oh. on the radio real quick. <laughs> we're multitasking, huh? <laughs> yes, we are, and also missing lunch, but that's okay. Anything <laughs> for our listeners. That's right. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, we were talking to Tim about, you know, layout of facilities, et cetera. And um, our understanding is you're more of the uh, nuts and bolts of the actual cleaning of these contents uh, expert, and we appreciate you coming on. I'm just curious, how do people charge for this type of service? Do you do it on an hourly cost, a unit cost, uh, or is it all over the board? It's a multiple choice answer. Um, some companies do it time and material. So some adjusters, some insurance companies, um, they you know set the parameters. They might if it's a program. They already have um, they whether they want to do it time and material or by the line item. Um, some companies are able to do um, multiple ways where the packout itself is done time and material. And that would be the, the labor and, you know, the, the moving truck and the supplies that's all listed as time and material. The cleaning portion could be listed as line items using Xactimate um, pricing or the POI format. And then, again, the pack back would be time and material. Barb, are any companies, any of your clients uh, or companies that you know of still using this box pricing method where they would have several standard size boxes, a small, medium, and large, and the company would charge a flat rate for cleaning everything that would fill up one of those boxes? Yes, that's actually um, pretty standard, and it's actually a fair way of doing it. Um, you know, it's a standard price for each size box. Um, I do recommend using um, small boxes because just for ease of you know packing them, moving them, storing them, that one size makes life a whole lot easier. And then it's you know it's easy to keep track of the count of the boxes. And then anything, my general rule of thumb, anything bigger than a bread box um, is considered a separate line item and not considered a box item. What about time and material? Would they use different rates for cleaning something like fine china or crystal as opposed to cleaning something like an oil painting uh, or electronics? The same rates uniform or different rates? No, uh, based on skill level and also, you know, we've got liability issues as well. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to put 
a new employee, you know, at a low hourly rate, working on fine china or artwork. So really artwork should be sent to specialists um, at least to um, inspect it and determine what is the method of cleaning that's necessary. And really electronics would be the same way. Um, you have to use a, a skilled technician and so the hourly compensation would um, have to be adjusted as well. What about some companies charging as a percentage of what they've saved? Like let's say a, a stereo might be worth $1,000 and you save that. You know, do, do you recommend the sense of entitlement because I saved this stereo, I'm entitled to 20% or 30% of replacement cost? I personally have never priced that way. I, you know, I've, I know that some companies do that um, based on on the value. You know, if you're going, and it's something I think that needs to be addressed up front with the adjuster. And if that's they determine that's a fair way of doing it, then you know, move forward with it. I had one example um, with medical equipment where we were processing um, $20,000, $50,000 pieces of equipment. So our liability was very high. And so in that case, you know, it doesn't really seem fair to charge $35 an hour um, when a different skill level is needed and there's so much more liability. I just remembered that Tim deferred a question to you uh, while you okay. were gone. And um, the, the question was really a th- like a three-part question. Number one, what is a moving container? Number two, where can they be obtained? Number three, how much they cost? Okay. Um, A moving container, typically, within our industry, what we're usually talking about is a wooden container that is five feet wide, seven feet um, deep, and seven feet high, and it's on a pallet-type base that a forklift could lift it. Um, they can be obtained. That's a tricky one where they can be bought. The most common place is Jacksonville Box Company in Florida. And um, otherwise, sometimes moving companies are selling off used containers, and they really don't get beat up too badly with a moving company. So you can get them at a you know, decent rate. New, the prices fluctuate based on raw material prices. So um, in a, any given year, they could be $125 each, and or they could go up to $225. It just depends, you know, on raw material prices. Okay, I'm going to switch you back to Joe. Hi, Joe. Hello, Bob. I think I'm on mute now. I, I apologize if I have a little uh, static in the background here, but I'm curious. You know, I, I work with a lot of uh, restoration people, and it seems like they're all over the board about um, who ultimately determines whether something is restorable or not, and then you know what happens if it's restored, and then the owner decides they still don't want it. Yeah, it's always um, tricky, but as far as who determines if something is restorable, a lot of that is determined by the cost of the restoration. So one example is um, so many different things are truly restorable. It just depends on how much money the insurance company is willing to pay for the restoration. So um, you could have a picture from Kmart that the handle, you know, is broken off. Well, sure, you can send it to a glass repair company and they'll be able to um, repair the handle for a fee of $100. $100 to repair, the restoration um, exceeds the value of a $20 pitcher, so that would not you know, take place. Um, on the other hand, if you have an uh, uh, antique uh, glass-cut pitcher that's 200 years old and you know, has a high value to it, um, $100 repair a restoration would be totally in line for the value of the piece. Um, as far as something being restored and given back to the homeowner and they decide they don't want it, um, really, you know, that could have maybe been headed off at the past by determining up front, uh, you know, what their needs are. Um, one, 
place that we see this as common is with dry cleaning. That a lot of the clothes are dry cleanable or restorable, um, but maybe they don't fit the kids anymore. So it's a waste of the insurance money to actually have them restored and dry cleaned. So those kind of things need to be addressed up front with the initial walkthrough, asking the homeowner, you know, what is of extreme value, determining what are the insurance coverages, is there enough money, you know, in the in the insurance to pay for all of the things that are needed to be done on the job. What contents restoration services would be highest risk and highest reward? Wow. Um, highest risk, obviously, would be, for me, would be artwork. And I personally, you know, would send it off to a professional. And it would be really rewarding. Um, we had an example in one of our classes. Um, an art restoration company showed us some photos of uh, oil painting from the Civil War. And it actually had a hole in it from a cannonball. And the edges were all burned. And they were actually able to restore it. They did months of research to determine the best way to restore it. So they didn't jump in and just try to fix it, but they researched it. And then they totally restored it. And it was a beautiful painting. I'm not sure, guys. Is Dr. Wild still on the line? Yes, he is. You know, Peter, he's Yes, I am. You probably have more contents in your home than anybody I know. Um, I'm just curious, is there anything that uh, you're looking at there that you have a question about as far as, you know, what if it got water damaged or fire damaged? How, oh, how would it be restored? Don't, <laughs> don't even mention those things. <laughs> uh, you know, there is, I mean, well, I guess books in this country are not very valuable, <laughs> and people don't care about them anymore. And you can get it on uh, on eBay or the internet. But no, there are a ton of things over here. I have you know scientific equipment over here uh, for my job. If that would be, uh, I, I don't even know whether that is covered. I I doubt it. I doubt it very much. And you know, I uh, collected collected past tense uh, firearms, and they are expensive, and they are. <laughs> You don't want to throw them in the water or something like that. And I know that is not covered at all. So if something is going to happen over here, it will cost me an arm and a leg, I believe me. I'm curious, Bob, is it, uh, how difficult is it to restore firearms that have, let's say, been in a flood? Are they restorable? Um, I, I'm not a firearms expert, so I would... Um, get a firearms expert involved in it um, in the process right away. When I do my initial walkthrough with the homeowner and the adjuster, um, I ask specifically to the homeowner, what do you have here that is of extreme value that you're concerned with? Barb, my experience used to be that doing packouts was somewhat geographical. There were some parts of the country where packout firms were dominant, and there were some parts of the country where working on location was dominant. Is this still the case? Um, I'm having a bad connection right now. Okay. Um, I, I missed the question. Okay, I'll, tr I'll, tr I'll try to repeat it. My, ex my business experience was that packouts was very geographical. There were some parts okay. of the country, such as Texas, uh, Chicago, California, where packout firms were very, very dominant. And when in Pittsburgh, you know, we only did packouts when we had to. And I was just wondering whether or not you still have these geographical differences. Um, not really. I mean, sometimes it, you know, it's based on the adjusters. I think we lost her. I think I think we did too. We can Joe back down here and Dieter. Yeah, I think we may have I, lost our guest. I that way. Dieter, are you still there? I'm there, but I can't hear her uh, either. Okay. No. Okay. Well, no, we, I think we lost her. Yeah, we we can chat and see whether or not uh, she she calls in. But you know, I think she was saying that this was a matter of adjuster preference, and. Uh, 
Yeah, that's probably true. Um, so the adjuster would be the one who would help to determine whether they were cleaned on site or not? Right. And I think okay. I think it dealt with their training and their personal experiences and uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, I've got some questions that I was going to ask her, and you know what I'll do is just I'll ask myself the question, and then <laughs> and then I think I'll answer it. Uh, you know, one of the questions I wanted to talk to her about was really profitability of doing contents versus doing structure cleaning. You know, washing walls and ceilings and doors and windows is very, very labor-intensive. And I found that the insurance company had unit costs for all those things. They would pay you so many pennies per square foot to do this, so many pennies per square foot to do that. And we found that they really didn't have a good handle when it came to contents in terms of being able to price that. So typically, when the insurance company doesn't have really good statistical information, those end up being... Uh, you know, pretty profitable opportunities for, you know, contractors to make money in these cracks and in these crevices. I mean, would you refer to, I mean, I know one gentleman who, um, he every year purchases these catalogs, like the, what the cost, going cost for baseball cards is for these uh, specialty collectibles, like, you know, Barbie dolls, toys, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Has that been your experience, Cliff? Did they go to some reference and try and put a price tag on it and then determine is it worth restoring or should we just pay for the loss? No, absolutely. I think that there were a number of different books that we would get on an annual basis that would have antiques. And there was actually, gosh, I think, Barb, Barb, are you back with us now? Yes, I am. Sorry okay. about that. Okay, that's okay. I've got a question for you. There was a book okay. that, that I used to use, and it started with an H. And this was a book that had all sorts of resource information in it. You know, who would repair glass and who would do this and, and who would do that. Do you remember the name of it? No, I don't. I would love to have access to it. That sounds great. Yeah, I remember the name of it. I, and I actually have to dig out an old presentation to, uh, you know, to find it. Um, mm-hmm. Do your clients find it challenging to get paid for this work? Um, again, it's just, it's how they've set the job up. Um, um, for the most part, they're not having a problem with it. It's a, developing the relationship with, you know, the adjusters, explaining what services are to be offered. Um, some companies I know of, what they'll do is they have it in their um, agreement that the homeowner signs that they understand that they will be required to come to the contractor's facility, do an inspection of the contents, and determine what is acceptable and what is not, and then the invoice for the contents processing will, you know, be presented, and once payment has been received, then the homeowners would receive their contents back. Um, But for the most part, one of the problems that paying up payment is um, when there's undisputed uh, there's things that disputed where the homeowner will make claims that something's missing, something's broken. And so now they hold the whole check hostage basically because of one small problem. Any good solutions for that or not really? Not breaking or losing anything. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> no, the best solution is um, to have a detailed inventory where everything has been photographed of pre-existing conditions and everything is tagged and tracked through the inventory software and you know, using a vault system where each vault is marked so that you know exactly where each box and each item has been stored in your warehouse and that you have photos of the pre-existing conditions of each content you know, at the point of the packout so that if there's... Um, damage later, you can determine, did it, you know, was it pre-existing or did we actually do it during the pack-out process? It's a lot easier paying for damage that you know that you, you know, created, but having to have something disputed and you don't have any evidence. I had a really good situation. Um, I'm so glad I had the photographs. We packed out probably $100,000 worth of artwork and antiques out of a home in Santa Barbara, 
and uh, Tim and I packed this antique clock. It's all hand-carved, beautiful, and we took photographs of it. We made notes. We packed it, overpacked it just so it would be safe. Um, the cleaning crew cleaned it. We sent it back to the house. And the homeowner approached me, and she showed me the clock. A piece was missing off of the top of it. And so my first reaction was, uh, the cleaning crew must have, you know, misplaced this piece. But I said, you know what, let's just look at the photographs. And we had that photo of the clock on the wall, and the piece was missing, even before Tim and I took it down off the wall. So as careful as we were, we didn't even notice the piece was already missing. But those photographs... Um, solved the case and you know she didn't accuse us of anything else after that point realizing how detailed our photographs were she never made any more accusations after that yeah that's a great story i have a couple like that in my life but unfortunately uh, I, I it took me a long time to uh, to learn the lesson in regards to this photographing and inventorying and barcoding and vaulting and and so on and so forth this is charged for separately correct this isn't a free part of the service like if i give you my pack out i provide all this stuff for free oh uh, we don't provide anything for free but with pack outs as far as the inventory process um, again, if we charge our packouts time and material, then we're just including that service in the time and materials. Um, one of the cautions is we don't want to take an extremely long time doing our inventory where you know, we're overcharging um, for it. But if we were doing the old-fashioned handwritten inventories, they're time-consuming. And so if we switch over to using the software barcoding package, we actually should see a decrease in our packout time, or it should remain about the same. We're going to have a learning curve, obviously, when we start you know, um, implementing something new. But for the most part, you know, it's, we should be able to um, put estimates together that are about the same cost, and we're adding so much more value and covering ourselves from a liability issue by using the software and inventory system. Barb, if you were doing a pack out for me and you had all the belongings from my home, would you allow me access to those? How much access would you allow me? And would you allow me to take things that you had cleaned and restored before you had been paid? Um, sure. You know, they are your belongings, obviously. So um, what I would do is when I'm performing the walkthrough, with you as the homeowner, I would let you know what's going to take place with your contents, that we're going to pack them out, they're going to go to a warehouse, I'll show you photographs of the warehouse and the vaulting system, so you, you can see the complexity of what we're actually doing with your contents. Um, we will have in a letter explaining that you can have, we will offer you um, two retrievals within the first two weeks after the pack out. Because we realize you're going to forget you know, to take some things with you, you might need some things. After that, um, we would state that there would be a fee um, for each retrieval and then an hourly rate. It would be a base fee and an hourly rate for any kind of retrievals that we need to do after that. And um, as far as releasing the contents to you, we would have a form that you would sign showing that you did receive those contents and that they're no longer in our inventory. Uh, can you provide a couple of trade secrets for our restoration listeners in terms of you know, dealing with restoration of contents or packouts? One of the key things that I stress is slowing the job down at the beginning. Um, we're, you know, we're restoration people. We respond to chaos. We're very reactive. And we just want to jump in and get it done. We want to help the people. And sometimes in that effort, we are um, just bombarding the homeowner with too many people, too many decisions to make. So I like to slow the job down the first couple days. Um, it, unless the roof is caving in and we have you know, very severe conditions, um, more than likely, the house is going to be undergoing renovation for a month, two months. 
so, you know, what's the big rush of getting the pack out done in two days? I would rather establish um, some order with the homeowner, maybe send a person or two in to just set the job up and go from there. You know, we've got about five or six minutes left, so what I'd like to do is, number one, thank you for being with us. I'd also uh, ask you to, to stay with us. We've got a couple of other things, and at the end we're going to have a little roundup, and uh, we may have questions from people that call in, and we, we noticed that there are a bunch of people on the screen now that have kind of texted in. And I just wondered, was there anything that you thought we should have asked you, Barb, that we didn't ask you? No, it's been great. I look forward to hearing some questions from the audience, and I appreciate the opportunity to do this with you guys. Perfect. How can our audience get in touch with you should they want to do that? Um, they can reach me at my email address, which is restorationcleanups, plural, um, at msn.com. I also have a, a blog and that is www.barbjackson at blogspot.com. Thank you. And my phone number sure. <laughs> is um, 412-812-5802. Thank you. Just hang on. Pound of wood, pound of three, four. Bring it on round, rip it on down. I'd like to sound off about something. Bob Riley said one person can make a difference. In fact, it's not only possible for one person to make a difference, it's essential that one person makes a difference. And believe it or not, that person is you. Joe Arrigo, a Restoration Industry Association member in Colorado, felt passionately about insurance companies steering policyholders to preferred vendors for claims work and decided to do something about it. Earlier this week, Colorado Governor Bill Ritter signed the Consumer Freedom of Choice Bill, a bill that was actively supported by the Restoration Industry Association. This bill, HB 1104, is called the Insurance Consumer Freedom of Choice Bill, which the association hopes will set a precedent nationwide for consumer freedom of choice in property restoration. The bill, which easily passed both the Colorado House and Senate, prevents insurance companies from dictating which restoration company must be used in a covered property repair loss. The bill states, quote, competition is fundamental to the free enterprise system and that the unrestrained interaction of competitive forces will yield the best allocation of economic resources, the lowest prices, the highest quality commodities and services. Both the House and Senate concurred that passage of the bill would safeguard the public against monopolies, trusts, and market barriers, as well as foster and encourage competition by prohibiting unfair and discriminatory practices that impede fair and honest competition. Congratulations to Joe Arrigo and the RIA for the courage to take action and do the right thing for both policyholders and insurance repair providers alike. It's my sincere hope that other states will follow suit. Move them on, hit them up, hit them up, move them on, move them on, hit them up, raw high. We actually have a fellow by the name of George on the line that has would like to make a comment. George? That's all your house is. A place to keep your stuff. If you didn't have so much stuff, you wouldn't need a house. A house is just a pile of stuff with a cover on it. And when you leave your house, you gotta lock it up. Wouldn't want somebody to come by and take some of your stuff. They always take the good stuff. They never bother with that crap you're saving. Okay, I think we should have everyone on the line now at this particular point. Any comments uh, about, you know, what our inter interviewee said today? I, I'll tell you, Cliff, I, <laughs> George Carlin uh, really hit, hit it dead on. Huh? They always take your good stuff, and uh, unfortunately, uh, 
leave all the crap behind. And uh, I'm just curious, Bob, you know, I do have some comments. One is, first of all, thanks for the great advice on slowing things down at the beginning of the job. I, I think that's probably the best advice any listener could get. And uh, I do want to thank you also for joining us. Thanks for the opportunity. It's it's been great. Um, I'm wondering, you know, what do you do with the, you know, the people, the pack rats that have so much stuff there, and uh, you're really not sure what to do with it. Is that, you know, up to the? That's the key thing I think you have to do right up front. Um, it has to be addressed with the um, adjuster. You know, what are the limits? Um, what is it that we're actually um, being contracted to do? Because it is such a challenging type situation. So um, sometimes I mean, we had one job that <laughs> we pack. They were pack rats. We would go in clean, and we would just stack it up. The, how we found it, it um, we would try to organize it. We'd come back the next day, and it would be a mess again. You know, so um, it, it's a very challenging kind of situation. One thing that we've done is taken photographs at the end of each day of what we have accomplished, so that the adjuster can see that you know we did um, clean things off and you know process them properly so that you know we can get paid for it cuz it they could be a mess again within just a couple of days you never know we were there you know one of our earlier uh, one of our earlier shows we had a fellow by the name of Ron Alford on and uh, he coined this disease called dysposophobia and uh, he's written some books about it and does some consulting on it and uh, having he has one an of, awesome website oh yeah oh, yeah Yes, he does. He has an awesome website, I believe she said. It is. It's interesting. He shows those before and after pictures of, of his disposophobia clients. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, uh, it's excellent. That's what I was exactly what I was thinking of, Cliff, when I asked the question. You know, what do you do when people have newspapers from, you know, 25 years ago or uh, 15 or even 10 years worth of newspapers stacked up in there and there's been a a fire or water loss, and I think Bart, you know, hit it right on the head. You basically do the best you can, see if it's covered or not, and uh, document, document, document. You know, anyone want to comment on, I guess, my, my sound off in terms of, um, you know, I think the insurance companies have had a free hand in being able to kind of steer this work to uh, people who really they you know had up against the wall and I, I think it was really a brave thing and I'm kind of excited about it actually yeah I'm looking forward to the outcome of it definitely um, I know Joe it invested a lot of time and funds I'm sure and it'll be interesting to see how this all works out um, and it just you know there's a lot of a lot more controls I think coming in the future um, I think one of the things that we see is just the fact that the, the pricing, you know, is Xactimate, that it's becoming more and more standardized. And I think it's obviously getting the attention of politicians as well. And it sounds like uh, price controls or uh, price fixing, actually, maybe next. I, I agree with you, Cliff. I, I think Joe was brave to go out on the limb and uh, really push the issue. And it looks like, uh, like you said, one man can't make a difference. And it sure helps when you have a, an association backing you. We call that the power of association. And uh, it sounds like Joe did a great job of uh, pulling those forces together. Yes, he did. Okay, well, I think we're about out of time. Dieter, anything from you before we close? Well, <clears throat> Am I on right now? Yes, you are. Yeah. <clears throat> Usually at the end of every show, is I'm, gl- <laughs> I'm glad I listened. I, I learned a couple of new words in the English language that I never, ever used. <laughs> Hopefully, I never have to use them. <laughs> and I always learn something. I mean, they, these were topics that I virtually know nothing about. I know a little bit from Cliff, and I was over at his facility, and I saw cleaning booths and cleaning equipment and so on for doing such things, but I have never been involved with it professionally, and certainly and fortunately not uh, personally. So it's, it's always interesting to learn something new. 
And we thank you for participating, Dieter. You always add so much to the program. Hell, I like it. And, and, and be careful with the ozone. Don't inhale that stuff. It's good for deodorizing. Yes, but it's not good for the lungs. It's, it's, not, it's terrible for the lungs. <laughs> I'm using your lungs out here, by the way. Oh, dude. good. Peter's got a cast of the lungs. Someday, Barb, will have to show you that. It's amazing. Uh, somehow he was able to get a negative of a calf lung that people still find uh, very interesting. Anyway, I've got a rush of people coming back into the room here right now, so I'm going to sign off before you do, Cliff. Thanks again, Barb, Peter, and uh, all of our listeners. I'll see you all next week. At, the, at, the, at this point, we'd like to thank our, we'd like to again thank our sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry, subscriptions and advertising available at ieconnections.com, Dryease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryease is first in drying solutions. You can find them on the web at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com, as well as the Restoration Forum on the web at restorationforum.com. And last but not least, Microband Systems, the microbial management company, on the web at microbandsystems.com. Links to IEQ Radio are available at ieqtraining.com and unsmoke.com web pages. Additionally, we have a website which you can find at ieqradio.com. Don't forget to visit ieqtraining.com for the training you trust. If you are interested in indoor environment, in American Indoor Air Quality Council certified training or customized training programs, please visit the ieqtraining.com website or contact joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. This is Cliff Slotnick saying thank you to technical director Dietrich Wow, co-host Joe Hughes, and to cyber jockey Zach Slotnick. But most importantly, to you, our growing group of loyal listeners, please come back and join us next Friday at noon Eastern Standard Time for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 